Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing articles of interest from a variety of sources. This is being recorded for the listening week that begins February 10th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening with readings from a Denver local publication, the Denver Urban Spectrum. February edition. First, a message from the editor Ruby Jones. Black History Month is an opportunity to reflect on the innumerable contributions made by black people from America's inception to now, from the time that black men, women, and children were carried across the waters of the Atlantic Ocean and forced into the barbaric practice of slavery, we have helped shape society through labor, food, spirituality, music, dance, and education. We are innovators who turned the nothing we were given into a glorious something, and that something is woven through the very fabric of this nation. Black History Month is more than the memorialization of civil rights leaders, inventors, trailblazers, and public figures. Black History Month celebrates each and every one of us and pays tribute to the living history of people working to create a better world. This month should inspire every one of us to dismantle systemic and institutionalized barriers to true equity and evoke a stronger sense of unity and commitment to community. Denver is home to history makers. Robert F. Smith is the wealthiest black man in America, and in this month's cover story, you'll learn how the business tycoon's commitment to philanthropy is making history and changing the world. You'll also learn about the success and legacy of Reginald F. Lewis in, quote, A Look Black in Time, and the upcoming Rachel B. Noel Distinguished Visiting Professor Cleo Parker Robinson The February issue features several organizations that are creating, preserving, and expanding black history, including Ski Noir, 5280, the Museum for Black Girls, the Urban Leadership Foundation of Colorado, and the Five Points Business Improvement District. This issue also features a sneak peek at Make and Cake, a touring production that discusses the bitter truth of historic oppression and modern inequity in a sweet cake-baking environment. Each year, Denver Urban Spectrum recognizes history makers in our own Colorado communities with the African Americans Who Make a Difference Awards. This issue highlights the profiles of 16 men and women whose devotion to their community is a shining example of black history in the making. Please enjoy this issue and join us in celebrating our rich heritage and culture this month and all year long. Cover story, Robert F. Smith, A Black Billionaire. Smith's Legacy of Equity, Opportunity, and Advancement by Ruby Jones. This may be edited for length. Philanthropist and dealmaker Robert F. Smith is one of the world's most prominent 
business leaders and the richest black man in the U.S. He has made history as one of the world's 14 black billionaires, but more impressive than his ability to make money is his commitment to giving it away. The highly awarded tech investor has established a remarkable legacy of business innovation and continues to change the world with early childhood experience as his guide. The Robert F. Smith STEAM Academy sits just over a mile from the historic Five Points neighborhood in Denver, Colorado, where Smith was raised. Honoring his enormous success and ongoing involvement in Denver area communities, During his acceptance speech at the 2023 George H.W. Bush Points of Light Awards, Smith recalled his life in Denver. Quote, I felt loved every day, he said. I lived in a beloved community where the people in our community cared about me and the children in our community. There were thousands of points of light in that community. We had people in our community who taught us the importance of hard work and values, end quote. Born in December 1962, Smith's early childhood experiences were shaped by the caring members of a working-class community and a public school education. Yet, the education provided by his loving parents, educators Dr. William Robert Smith and Dr. Sylvia Myrna Smith, taught him the immense value of giving back. Each month, Despite his family's financial circumstances, his mother contributed $25 to the United Negro College Fund, UNCF, teaching him that everyone had the ability to make the world a better place, no matter their status or stature. Quote, My mother was a great inspiration, Smith said at the Points of Light Award ceremony. His mother also brought him as an infant to the 1963 March on Washington, where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the famous I Have a Dream speech. Years later, for the 60th anniversary of that occasion, Smith spoke on the same steps as Dr. King. Philanthropy, activism, and equity were ingrained from birth, and these values laid the framework for a lifetime of achievement. While attending East High School, Smith applied for an internship at a research and development organization called Bell Labs and was initially denied because he was too young. Quote, the human resources director said, no, you need to apply between your junior and senior year in college. So I actually called her every day for two weeks. She stopped taking the calls after the second day, and I left a message, and I called her every month pardon me, every Monday for five months, said Smith during a speech at Code.org's Epic Day of Code. He went on, quote, and it changed my life. A foundation for future success. After graduating from high school, Smith continued the internship while studying chemical engineering at Cornell University, where his commitment to community was further ingrained as a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering in 1985 before going on to work as an engineer for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company and Kraft General Foods. While at Kraft, he acquired two U.S. patents for coffee brewing systems, as well as two European patents. He enrolled in Columbia Business School and earned a Master of Business Administration degree. 
1994, he joined Goldman Sachs, where he worked as co-head of Enterprise Systems and Storage for the investment banking, securities, and investment management firms, New York City, and then Silicon Valley offices. He became the first person at Goldman Sachs in San Francisco to focus solely on mergers and acquisitions in the tech sector, assisting major corporations with deals totaling $50 billion. Vista Equity Partners was founded by Smith in 2000 and has grown into a leading global investment firm with over $101 billion in assets under management. Vista solely invests in enterprise software, data, and technology companies throughout the world. Giving back. One of Smith's most special attributes is his dedication to philanthropic efforts and actions that improve outcomes for underrepresented populations. In addition to making history as a billionaire, he became the very first black person to sign the Giving Pledge, committing to invest half of his network to causes that support equal opportunities for black Americans and causes that protect the planet during his lifetime. Founded by Smith in 2014, Fund2 Foundation mobilizes his passion for his heritage and his desire to eradicate systemic inequity. The Foundation provides grants to organizations that preserve the black experience and culture, promote music education, protect the environment, and correct human rights exploitations. Quote, the whole inspiration really comes from an ideological position around how do you liberate the human spirit. Smith is quoted on the Foundation's website. He goes on, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than the liberated human spirit. End quote. Smith currently serves as founding director and president of Fund2 Foundation, drawing on the value of education instilled in him by his parents. Smith has remained active at both of his alma maters throughout the years. He is a member of Cornell's Engineering College Council and is on Columbia Business School's Board of Overseers. Through Fund2 Foundation, the personal giving, he has also donated millions of dollars to each institution, including his scholarship programs for black Americans and women studying STEM. In 2016, Cornell University renamed the school he graduated from to the Robert Frederick Smith School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering in his honor. With education and opportunity as the catalyst for his success, Smith endeavors to extend opportunities to students pursuing college degrees. In 2019, he made headlines as the benefactor for nearly 400 Morehouse College graduates, donating $34 million to cover the cost of their student loan debt, and that held by their guardians. In 2020, he made a personal contribution of $50 million, matching Fund2 Foundation's donation to Student Freedom Initiative, SFI. SFI provides mentoring, internships, and other resources for STEM students at participating historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, and the other minority-serving institutions, MSIs, in addition to an alternative loan option to finance their education. Additionally, Smith co-leads Southern Communities Initiative alongside Dan Schulman, 
Former CEO of PayPal, Rich Lesser, of Global Chair of Boston Consulting Group, and Lajun Montgomery Tabron, President and CEO of W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a program for accelerating racial equity across six southern communities that represent more than 50% of the black population in the U.S. To promote equity, SCI partners with community leaders, companies, and organizations to make progress in four key areas, expanding minority business, enterprise, entrepreneurship, and supplier diversity, upgrading the capillary banking system to provide greater access to capital, education-slash-HBCU and workforce development, and bridging the digital divide. Fund2 Foundation hosts an internship initiative called Intern XL, which extends Smith's positive internship experience as a young man to others. Quote, the thing that I look at that I can be best at is to enable opportunity at scale, he said during his Points of Light speech. We have 23,000 STEM students from HBCUs and MSI organizations with over 400 corporate partners as part of that initiative to enable the opening of the window of opportunity. He went on to say, My life changed through two internships. They provided a window into a world that would not have been seen in my community, business, and commerce. Everyone in my neighborhood, they were very small, pardon me, they were small business people. They were the Pullman Porters Union. They were educators. They were teachers, small contractors. They didn't work at large corporations and were not able to Pardon me, and were not able to enable a number of kids in that community to see what American commerce and trade really looked like, and that's why internships are so important. Worldwide Influence Focused on making the world a better place for the next generation, Smith's philanthropy provides access to better economic outcomes, in addition to more favorable ecological outcomes that will ensure the planet remains livable for generations. While Smith's professional endeavors take him all over the world, Colorado holds a special place in his heart, and he devotes a great deal of funding for environmental conservation to the National Park Foundation. In 2015, Fund2 Foundation created the Fund2 Civil Rights Historic Preservation Program in partnership with NPF National Parks. He also contributes to the development of parks throughout the country to expand access to outdoor recreational activities for children, people with physical disabilities, and military veterans who have been exposed to trauma. Smith is the co-founder of Lincoln Hills Cares, a Colorado-based organization that provides leadership development through outdoor education, and the exploration of cultural history, Lincoln Hills, which was established as the only resort available for the enjoyment of black Americans in 1922, has undergone preservation efforts that encourage youth and families to explore Colorado's great outdoors. Lincoln Hills Cares has served over 100,000 young people and partners with local organizations to create memorable Rocky Mountain experiences. From Colorado, Pardon me, from colorful Colorado to his offices in Austin, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Oakland, and Hong Kong, 
Smith is creating change and making history as one of the most generous and prosperous people of our time. His early life experiences in a strong community environment created the foundation for his success and his journey as a corporate phenomenon and human humanitarian pardon me, is a true representation of the American dream. He says, quote, The essence of America is a big heart. It is a strong community. It is a foundation of love bounded by education and opportunity. Next article, Powder to the People, written by Elena Brown. In thermodynamics, heat is expressed by the symbol Q. Ironically, one of Colorado's most recognizable figures is also known by many as Q. But this Q prefers the cold. Quincy. Q. Shannon is directing his burning hot passion for cold events into a tremendous effort to increase inclusivity in mountainous terrains. In 2018, the Reverend, social activist, and DSST, colon, Green Valley Ranch Middle School Dean of Students, founded Ski Noir 5280 to spark innovation and inspiration for mountain sports and activities among underrepresented and offer under, pardon me, often underexposed groups. Quote, As president of Ski Noir, I work to introduce more new skiers and snowboarders who look like me to the sport while connecting those who already have a love for the mountains. Shannon is a lifelong Denver resident who grew up in Park Hill neighborhood. Quote, My neighbor actually founded a local black ski club called Slippers and Sliders that was a chapter of the National Brotherhood of Skiers founded in the 70s. He shared with the Travel Noir Digital Media Company. He went on, From a young age, I was exposed to seeing thousands of professional black people on Colorado slopes. It wasn't until I was older that I realized I was very privileged to witness this. End quote. Growing up in Denver's inner, inner city environment, he explained to 303 Magazine that his life could have been very different. He said, quote, Drugs, gangs, and violence were things that I had gotten used to seeing, and I was able to escape to the mountains where I had the clarity and vision to realize life was really something much grander. End quote. This year, the National Brotherhood of Skiers, NBS, will hold its 2024 Summit for Black Skiers in Big Sky, Montana, from February 24th to March 2nd. The summit is full of entertainment with a big week-long party featuring concerts, movie nights, a pre-ski, happy hours, and races. Aside from the fun and winter games, the organization's mission statement is loud and clear. Quote, to identify, develop, and support athletes of color who will win international and Olympic winter sports competitions representing the United States and to increase participation in winter sports. End quote. Presently, the organization has 23 member athletes representing all four regions, including Olympians and Paralympics. Ben Finley, age 85, helped organize NBS, and for nearly 50 years, the group has helped people find their way to the mountain, learn how to ski, and forge long-term friendships throughout an umbrella network of nearly 60 groups throughout the country.
Eight of the ski groups are located in the Rocky Mountain region, and four are in Colorado. Ski Noir 5280 is joined by the BIPOC Mountain Collective, Slippers and Sliders Ski Club, and Ski Ambassadors of Colorado Springs. Shannon understands the impact on the community. He represents a new generation of ski enthusiasts, and by founding Ski Noir 5280, he is working hard to encourage representation in the mountains. However, he has faced many unexpected challenges, and even getting people to try the sport can be a struggle. Participation in outdoor recreational activities underwent positive diversification trends in 2022, according to the Outdoor Industry Association's 2022 Outdoor Participation Trends Report. COVID-era restrictions may have played a role in the surge, as people grew weary of indoor activity and longed to get back outside. In 2022, Shannon started a company called Neighborhood Uplift, to respond to the increased desire for outdoor exploration. The company is developing a youth program to help introduce the next generation to winter sports and is raising funds to purchase a charter bus that will improve access to the mountains. With over 275 donations, Neighborhood Uplift is just $45,000 away from its goal. Ski Noir 5280 has flourished with partnerships, sponsorships, and grassroots fundraising and membership efforts. Nearing 100 members, the organization provides sponsored outdoor gear, discounted lift tickets, and season passes, along with regular, quote, slide-through Saturday group trips to some of Colorado's best ski resorts. Shannon's substantial vision is centered around finding new ways to share his lifelong passion for skiing with people who otherwise might not get the chance. He recognizes that socioeconomic status, race, and transportation are all reasons why some people don't venture into the nearby mountains, and he is working to overcome as many barriers as possible. He balances his love for the outdoors with his work as a community, spiritual, and educational leader. As Dean of Students, he bridges the gap between students and administration, amplifying the voices of disempowered students while motivating them to achieve success. As Ski Noir 5280's president, he bridges the gap between the front range and the highest peaks, diversifying a traditionally homogenous environment. Quote, my gift is speech, voice, people hearing what I have to say. I am very much aware of that. So whether I am preaching a sermon, talking to a student, doing a poem nationally, or leading a march, it's all the same gift. It just comes out differently. Quote, end quote. He smiles. For Shannon, love for people is the driving force behind his passion for advocacy Love for the outdoors is the driving force behind his passion for winter recreation. Ski Noir 5280 is the embodiment of both, and it's creating opportunities for all. Editor's Note. For more information, visit them, www.skinoir5280.com. That's spelled S-K-I-N-O-I-R-5280. Next article, The Museum for Black Girls, a Celebration of Black Girl Magic, 
written by Brittany Winkfield. The Museum for Black Girls in Denver offers an insightful and empowering experience. It is an interactive, celebratory space where black women and girls are seen, heard, celebrated, and given much-deserved symbolic flowers. Located on the second floor of the downtown Denver Pavilions, the pop-up gallery serves as a valuable cultural resource with an attention to representation that resonates with visitors from diverse backgrounds. Its impact extends beyond the museum walls, promoting awareness and appreciation for local black female excellence, including the honorable former First Lady Wilma Webb and dance extraordinaire Cleo Parker Robinson. The Museum for Black Girls began its journey in the heart of Denver in 2019, along with her Aunt Von Ross. Charlie Billingsley's inspiration and vision was to create a space that would showcase the strength, resilience, and beauty of black women throughout history. After being laid off from three jobs, she didn't know exactly what she wanted to do, but she knew she could do exactly what she wanted, however that looked. Since its inception, the museum has embarked on an evolutionary journey of seven iterations, making stops in Houston, Washington, D.C. Each location served as a testament to the universal importance of recognizing and celebrating the achievements of black women. Quote, when I started this, I was not supposed, pardon me, it was not supposed to be a business. I was going to do a one-night event, and here we are at year five. End quote. Billingsley's creative dream has evolved into a dynamic reality as part of the Downtown Denver Partnerships Pop-Up Denver Program, which provides a central, accessible location for one year. This homecoming symbolizes not only the museum's roots, but also a commitment to build a sense of pride and belonging within the local community. She describes growing up in Colorado, quote, we didn't have spaces for black girls, so this museum stands as more than just a collection of exhibits. It is a living testament to the resilience, strength, and creativity of black women. I believe that black women are the foundation and blueprint of everything. End quote. Through art, history, and culture, the museum invites visitors to engage with and appreciate the multifaceted narratives that define black womanhood. She says, quote, we evolve every day, and that's what I love. One of the many highlights at the Museum for Black Girls is the Wall of Affirmations. Guests are first invited to look at the We See You mirror. Quote, we want visitors to see themselves as we see them, and that is beautiful, strong, and courageous, says Billingsley. The mirror represents a powerful force for change and inspiration. Guests are encouraged to write on the affirmation's wall and end their experience by writing and receiving a love letter to black women. Many events, like the Museum for Black Girls' Black Girl Magic Brunch, feature a combination of inspiring speakers, black-owned vendor markets, and interactive performances that highlight the diversity and richness of black women's experiences. Most recently, the museum presented a Sister Circle panel featuring Charlie Billingsley, Brea Jones-Jop-Coplin, pardon me, Diane Miles, Leslie Pace, and Claire Sabon.
hosted by Josie Blake. The panel encouraged open and empowering conversations about self-love, kindness, true sisterhood, and the collective strength of black women. Platforms for these conversations, whether online or in person, foster a sense of community and solidarity. The media landscape is gradually evolving to better represent the multifaceted experiences of black women. Recently, actress Taraji P. Henson expressed frustration surrounding workplace inequality and unequal pay in the music, pardon me, movie industry. She acknowledged that increased visibility of black women in diverse and positive roles contributes to reshaping social perceptions and promotes a more accurate narrative. In addition to media representation, the Black Girl Magic Movement extends beyond celebration to education, shedding light on the historical contributions and achievements of black women throughout history. By learning more about the black female experience over time, individuals gain a deeper appreciation for the magic inherent in their resilience. All are invited to experience the magic at the Museum for Black Girls. For tickets and more information, visit them www.themuseumforblackgirls, all one word, or pardon me, that's all one word, dot com. Next article, Make and Cake, written by Ruby Jones and Stacy Narin. From poetry to production, Dasha Kelly Hamilton does it all. She is an author and advocate who uses creative outlets to share messages about equity and advancement. Her latest production, Make and Cake, will be held live at North Glen Arts Parsons Theater on Saturday, February 24th at 7.30 p.m. The show will explore American history, race, culture, and class, and will feature a special guest appearance from renowned dancer and choreography Army choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson. The idea and premise for Making Cakes stems from Kelly Hamilton's desire to create a safe space for people from all walks of life to engage in conversation about differing sociological experiences. She constructed a creative storyline around the analogy of baking a cake, with each ingredient representing inequitable privileges only available to a few and not the whole of humanity. At one point in time, sugar was only afforded to the wealthy. The time it took to bake a cake was only available to those who were not tending someone else's land. People who did not own domestic animals were unable to produce the dairy that was churned into butter. Making cake was, in fact, a luxury. Quote, We've always had cake. Cake just hasn't been possible for everyone. Quote, end quote, says Kelly Hamilton, who points out that historically, most American residents have struggled to afford basic ingredients to make the dessert that has become commonplace with changing economic and social landscapes. Each ingredient and its symbolic representation reflects a story steeped in cultural history, which Kelly Hamilton has arranged into a unique conversation of racism and classism. The bitter elements are softened by the quasi-correlative process 
of baking a confectionery favorite, with discussions about red velvet cake, chocolate devil's food cake, honey cake, applesauce cake, ash cake, pineapple upside down cake, Johnny cake, apple crisps, and even the illustrious baked Alaska. There are lessons about the formation of our great nation, changing social standards and economic trends. Each social shift required care, just like the cake's assembly requires caution to avoid underbaking, overbaking, or one of the many chemical catastrophes affecting the entire structure. The presentation features an exploration of the way race, culture, and class have affected the country's structure and the role they've each played in our lives today. States the cake enthusiast who will appear on stage with pre-selected bakers, quote, There's a sweetness in being able to have a tough conversation this way. As the production tours, two bakers from each city will be selected to join her on stage. In some cities, the bakers will be amateurs. In other cities, they will be bakery owners and cake aficionados. Throughout the show, they will mix, measure, and blend ingredients while Kelly Hamilton gives an oratorical presentation about inequity in America. As the audience watches the construction of a tasty dessert, Kelly Hamilton's storytelling will dive deep with lessons that combine historical and social science revelations. Though the topics will remain the same in each city, the conversations unfold differently with each new audience. With so much happening on stage during the production, a team effort is required to prepare the set and avoid kitchen mishaps. The crew, including Kelly Hamilton's husband who facilitates the baking scenes, and the exceptional technical team, all work to make sure all the pieces are in place while the creator takes center stage. The make-and-cake audience is in for a treat. After the ingredients are perfectly blended in the first half of the performance, the second half features an interactive conversation where audience members can talk about what they heard, how they felt, and what questions they have. With a new understanding of how history plays a role in modern relationships and experiences, each member of the audience has an opportunity to contribute to the conversation from their own perspective. Says Kelly Hamilton, quote, Being able to be a part of this is always special. You have these different life experiences that are going to be represented in the audience, and people always have different reactions. But the flow is familiar, end quote. Underneath the light-hearted theme of baking a cake, her real-life stories and serious scenarios have a strong impact that permeates the hearts of spectators. Quote, it's a shared experience, so there's a feeling of openness. At the end of the performance, the whole audience has gone through something together, and there are a lot of emotions when you're talking about something difficult. End quote. For Kelly Hamilton, the conversations that occur after the performance are meaningful and provide an authentic ending to a powerful moment in time. She refers to herself as a creative change agent with tools to unravel unconscious bias and underlying prejudice through performance. She says, quote, I contribute as a whole for our kids to be better now and in the future. That's my living contribution. 
As Macon Cake continues to tour throughout the United States, Kelly Hamilton is excited for opportunities to present her work in new cities, build partnerships with new audiences and bakers from coast to coast. Macon Cake is a story about history and humanity, recovery and redemption. It's the bitter with the sweet, and it's making its way to the front range. Editor's note, for tickets and more information, visit www.northglenarts.org. It seems to have capital letters for North and Arts. North Glen Arts. .org. And still reading from Denver Urban Spectrum. Newman Center presents Joshua Redman. Acclaimed saxophonist returns to Denver with a new album and a new sound, written by Justin Levy. Esteemed saxophonist, composer, and band leader Joshua Redman is not new to Denver music lovers, having released over 20 albums and previously winning the Thelonious Monk International Saxophone Competition. However, his return to the Newman Center's Gates Concert Hall stage on Friday, March 1st, will offer fans a new wrinkle, a brand-new concept album, and a live show built around a dynamic vocalist. Working with Gabriel Cavassa and brilliant supporting music partners Paul Cornish on piano, Philip Norris on bass, and Nasir Ebo on drums, the Joshua Redman Group has released its first album on the Blue Note label titled Where We Are. Redman admits that an entire project featuring a melodic voice has long been in the back of his mind, quote, doing a record with a vocalist was something I thought I'd probably get to eventually, he explains, laughing, he goes on. But that eventually was starting to sound like glorified procrastination or avoidance, exclamation. Honestly, I think I was kind of torn. I've always had a sort of rhythm section envy, wishing I could be more of an embedded participant in an underlying supportive groove, At the same time, I think in my primary role as a saxophonist in instrumental groups, I was used to being a lead voice, and I secretly didn't want to relinquish all that melodic control, exclamation. Maybe being locked down during the pandemic gave me time, parentheses, too much time, to think about all of this. I guess I decided I was ready, end quote. It was Redmond's manager who gave him a tip on vocalist Cavassa. Quote, Once I heard Gabrielle, I realized that she has an expressive quality and an intimacy and a vulnerability in her sound that is singularly captivating. End quote. The end result for fans, new and old, is a remarkable live experience and new album consisting of songs such as Chicago Blues, Streets of Philadelphia, and Manhattan. At its core, the album is both a celebration and a critique of America. Each song is about a specific geographical location in the United States. The songs have shadings and alternative twists provided through mashups from different genres or generations. For example, the song My Heart in San Francisco parentheses, holiday, features a taste of Tony Bennett and Thelonious Monk, who each recorded their own take musically on The City by the Bay. 
Says Redmond, quote, The musical mood is primarily slow, soft, lyrical, and romantic, but also with darkness and longing and even sometimes anguish. I wanted musicians who were willing to embrace the beauty, the melancholy, and the mystery. End quote. Music fans will find Where We Are to be one of Redmond's most compelling albums and live performances to date. Editor's Note Tickets are available for purchase at www.newmancenterpresents.com or there's a phone number 303 871 7720. Next, from their hats off to section. I do not see an author for this, but we have Norman T. Harris, named Executive Director of the Five Points Business Improvement District. The Five Points Business Improvement District BID Board of Directors is thrilled to announce Norman T. Harris as the new Executive Director of the Five Points Business Improvement District. Harris will be taking over the management duties of the BID from the Downtown Denver Partnership, DDP. Recognizing the changing needs of the Five Points Business Improvement District, the BID Board initiated the search for a full-time executive director dedicated to being in the corridor and overseeing the necessary services that were previously managed by the DDP. Quote, Norman has a deep history and strong connections within the Five Points community, and his numerous positive contributions to the community, including launching initiatives like the Juneteenth Music Festival, make him an exceptional choice for the executive director position, end quote. Said Haran Cowens, Five Points Business Improvement District Board Chair, he went on, in addition to his technical expertise, Harris's leadership and unwavering dedication to the district will provide the corridor with incredible opportunities for success benefiting both the BID and the Five Points community, end quote. Born and raised in Denver, Harris attended Colorado Academy and Colorado State University. Currently, Harris is part owner of the Five Points Spangalang Brewery, and he serves as managing partner of the Holleran Group, an urban land development company. He is also the executive director of JMF Corporation and the founder of My High Fest. Pardon me, that's Mile High Festivals, an event management firm. As the executive director, Harris will report directly to the Five Points Business Improvement District Board of Directors. He is set to assume his duties in the second week of January 2024. Collaborating with the Board of Directors, Harris has laid out several goals for the first quarter active business engagement based on a plan and metrics developed in collaboration with the board chair and the board, activating committees by engaging committee chairs within two weeks of starting, establishing a monthly meeting schedule and announcing it by the end of January, developing an initial fundraising strategy to support the BID's placemaking, security and economic development goals, and providing monthly reports to the board on the accomplishment of set metrics. The Five Points BID focuses on strengthening and enhancing the efforts of businesses and property owners who reside, work, in, or contribute to the historic Five Points neighborhood of Denver. Positioned along Welton Street on the northeast edge of downtown Denver, 
The Five Points BID spans a 10-block corridor. The district's cultural promotion and preservation efforts aim to market the area as a cultural and tourism destination for arts, culture, and entertainment, showcasing Denver's black history and rich jazz heritage. Turning now to a different source material, we have the Wall Street Journal Wednesday, January 24th, print edition from the bookshelf. This review is written by Jared Halferich. On the book, The Survivors of the Clotilda, written by Hannah Durkin, which has been recently published. Article title, Wreckage to the Surface. On July 7, 1860, the last slave ship to land in the U.S., moored off the coast of Alabama. Crowded in the fetid hull of the Clotilda were 103 African captives, mostly adolescents and children. Because the ship arrived so late in the antebellum era, and because its victims were so young, we know many details about the prisoners, often recorded in their own words. In The Survivors of the Clotilda, the historian Hannah Durkin lets the enslaved speak for themselves, and they tell a story not only of unimaginable suffering, but also of courage and survival. Some 388,000 men, women, and children were kidnapped in Africa and transported to North America during the transatlantic slave trade. By 1808, as the number of enslaved persons in the U.S. approached 1.2 million, Congress outlawed the importation of slaves. Even after this prohibition, an estimated 8,000 Africans, like those on the Clotilda, pardon me, Clotilda, were brought to the U.S. illegally. As Miss Durkin relates, the enslavement of the Clotilda's captives began in mid-April 1860, when warriors of the neighboring Fawn people surrounded the town of Tarkar in present-day Nigeria. The attackers, armed with machetes, axes, and flintlocks, needed only half an hour to burn the town, kill most of the adults, and take prisoner the more than 100 survivors. Many years later, a man named Kosula, 19 at the time of the attack, wept as he recounted the terror of seeing his neighbors slaughtered and then being carried off himself. After enduring a two-week march to the slave port of Wida in present-day Benin, the captives were imprisoned together in a barracoon, a large circular pen with a thatched roof and bamboo walls. Tied to a stake, 12-year-old Radoshi heard the wails of other prisoners and realized that she would never see her town or family again. She later said, quote, Africa is my home. White men took it from us. They made animals out of us. End quote. While the prisoners languished in the barracoon, the Clotilda dropped anchor off the African coast. The 86-foot schooner was captained by William Foster, and its voyage was financed by a group of Alabama enslavers headed by the businessman Timothy Meir. That's spelled M-E-A-H-E-R. Enwida, Foster, 
negotiated a price of $9,000 in gold, 20 barrels of rum, and eight cases of calico cloth for the Tarkar captives, who were stripped naked for the duration of the voyage and crammed into the ship's airless hull. Uriba, a girl of 14 or 15, wept unconsolably for days, while Ridoshi prayed for death to take her. Subsisting on a daily ration of a cup of foul water and a little salt pork with crackers, the captives grew so frail that after two weeks, when they were allowed on deck in shifts, they were unable to walk. Seven young victims died at sea. After more than six agonizing weeks, Miss Durkin writes, the Clotilda reached the Alabama coast and was clandestinely towed through Mobile Bay and then to Twelve Mile Island, north of the city. The ship was burned, and the 103 surviving prisoners, emaciated and disoriented, but relieved at finally receiving rags to cover themselves, were taken by steamboat to a wild, swampy area about 40 miles upriver. Although the Clotilda's arrival was an open secret around Mobile, and reported in publications such as the New York Times and Harper's Weekly, the enslavers were able to avoid discovery by shuffling their captives by wagon through a maze of sloughs and cane breaks. As the survivors were sold in small groups, they grieved again at the new separation from family and lifelong friends. Scattered throughout several Alabama counties, they were put to work in kitchens, cotton fields, forests, lumber mills, shipyards, and steamboats. At the conclusion of the Civil War, five years later, most of the survivors were still in their teens and early twenties, longing to return to Africa but unable to raise the money for passage they continued laboring as sharecroppers on the same plantations where they had been enslaved, or they found jobs rebuilding the railroads or working in local industries. A few managed to buy their own land. One group approached Mir, their former captor, and purchased a secluded tract three miles north of Mobile, where they built a largely self-sufficient community they called African Town. The settlement thrived, and by 1912, its population had grown to more than 2,000. One by one, Kosula, Radoshi, and the others passed away. The last survivor, Matilda McGreer, pardon me, that's McCreer, died in Selma on January 13, 1940, at the age of 81 or 82. In 2019, the wreck of the Clotilda was identified, submerged off of Twelve Mile Island. Miss Durkin is not the first to chronicle the last slave ship and its survivors. The Harlem Renaissance author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston interviewed Kosula extensively beginning in 1927, but abandoned the project. Her resulting book, Barracoon, wasn't published until 2018. Other writers have mined the archives as well, and the story was featured in a 60 Minutes segment and a 2022 Netflix documentary. 
acknowledging her debt to her predecessors and sometimes correcting earlier misconceptions, Miss Durkin adds her own meticulous research and relates the story in ample and affecting detail. She writes, quote, Ultimately, the story of the Clotilda's survivors is a tale of enduring tragedy and loss, but also an extraordinary account of survival and endurance. The traces of the survivors' presence, quote, can still be found throughout Alabama, and their legacy and their descendants remain across the United States, end quote. By turns, horrifying and inspiring, it is a story that bears retelling. Just a couple of minutes left, turning to TheRoot.com, written by Noah A. McGee, History of the Best Black Performances at the Super Bowl. I'll read as many as I have time for here. From a host of HBCU marching bands to Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, and Beyonce, here's a list of black artists who have excited millions every year. Every year, the Super Bowl is the most watched television show in the country. Thousands of sports fans throw parties just to enjoy the biggest football game of the year with family and friends. However, millions tune in just to watch the performances. This year, Usher is performing at Super Bowl 53 which got us thinking about the history of black performers at the biggest sports events, pardon me, sports event of the year. Pardon me, the Grambling State University Marching Band, before the most popular artists in the world were lining up to perform at halftime of the Super Bowl. University marching bands were the main attraction between halves. The Grambling State University Marching Band performed at Super Bowl II and performed at six other Super Bowls. Florida A&M University Marching Band. The Grambling State University Marching Band isn't the only HBCU to shine at the biggest game. The Florida A&M Marching Band first performed at Super Bowl III in 1969, and they didn't perform again at the big game until 2005 during the pregame show. Ella Fitzgerald became the first black woman to perform at the halftime show, Super Bowl VI, she performed Mac the Knife along with trumpeter Al Hurt. Mercer Ellington. The last halftime show that featured jazz music, Super Bowl Nine in 75, included the Grambling State Marching Band and the Mercer Ellington Orchestra doing a tribute to Duke Ellington. Southern University Marching Band. It only made sense that the Southern University Marching Band performed at Super Bowl XV at the Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans in 1981. The theme for that show was Mardi Gras Festival. They would perform again at Super Bowl XXIV, also at the Superdome. Whitney Houston is one of the greatest singers of all time, so it's no surprise that her rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner at Super Bowl 25, pardon me, was one of the most memorable in recent history. Michael Jackson. His performance at Super Bowl 27 is set the standard for pop stars performing at football's biggest night. He showed up singing his biggest hits, including Billie Jean, Black or White, and his verse on 
We Are the World, along with the children's choir. For the first two minutes of the show, MJ stood absolutely still as fans went crazy. That should tell you everything about the stage presence that Jackson had. Patti LaBelle and Teddy Pendergrass. They collaborated for a performance at Super Bowl 29 with Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye as their inspiration. Diana Ross. The legendary Diana Ross had an incredible halftime show that displayed every part of her diva personality. She started the show wearing a stunning shiny red dress and made an outfit change in the middle of the show. A true diva. She sang classic R&B ballads like, pardon me, ballads like Stop in the Name of Love, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, and Baby Love. But also switched it up with pop bangers like I Will Survive and Take Me Higher. James Brown. He wasn't part of the show. He wasn't the only musician who performed. The halftime show was titled Blue Blue Brothers Bash, and it featured performances from ZZ Top and the Blues Brothers Band. Going to have to close this out. Boys to Men, Smokey Robinson, Queen Latifah, Martha Reeves, and the Temptations, Stevie Wonder, Savion Glover, Tony Braxton, Marie J. Blige and Nellie, Janet Jackson, P. Diddy and Nellie, Prince, Jennifer Hudson, Usher, Black Eyed Peas, and Prairie View A&M University Marching Storm, Nicki Minaj, CeeLo Green, Alicia Keys, Beyonce, and Destiny's Child. And Beyonce again, Gladys Knight, Big Boy and Travis Scott, Jasmine Sullivan, The Weeknd, ooh, I hope I have, I'm going to have to close this out, Mickey Guyton, ooh, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Kendrick Lamar, Mary J. Blige again, and 50 Cent. And I'm not going to be able to finish almost at the end, but I have to quit the time that's the end of our time. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.